you know that's an authority on San Francisco history? That's the kind of greeting a girl likes. Oh, this hello, you look wonderful stuff. Just a good straight, who do you know that's an authority on San Francisco? No, thanks. Well, who do you? You know everybody. Professor Saunders over in Berkeley. No, no, I don't, I don't mean that kind of history. I mean the, the small stuff, you know, people you never heard of. Oh, well, you mean the gay old bohemian days of gay old San Francisco. Juicy stories like who shot who in the Embarcadero in August 1879. Yeah, that's right. Pop Lebel. Who? Pop Lebel. He owns the Argosy Bookshop. Why, what do you want to know? I want to know who shot who in the Embarcadero in August 1879. Hey, wait a minute. You're not a detective anymore. What's going on? You know him well? Who? Pop Lebel. Oh, sure. Well, come on, let's go. I want you to introduce me. Get your hat. When I was a kid, I remember telling my sister, one day, I'm going to write so many books that they are going to fill an entire bookshelf. And she said to me, well, you better get cracking. I did not get cracking. Fast forward to being 20-something, and I was hanging out with a bunch of people I really, really loved. And part of what made me love them so much was I had this absolute conviction that we were all really significant. Like other people might end up stuck in the nothing place where we were growing up, but we were not going to do that. We were going to make it. I knew we in particular, we were destined for some kind of greatness. We were artists. We were significant. And I'm still close to those people. One works for the government. He writes love songs while his kid is sleeping. Another one lives in Europe and he self-published a book that we're all still trying to read. Another one moved to New Zealand and one works at a consulting firm. And for a few months last year, he was painting the most beautiful pictures but then he stopped. They're all significant to me, but none of us so far have ended up significant on any grand scale. And I've been thinking about this question of significance a bit recently because I think my view on it has changed almost completely. Almost. It's reminded me of a poem that I came across uh, probably five or so years ago that I think had its moment in the sun back then. So you might have heard of it already. It's called I Was Minor, and it's by a poet called Elena Kalachiak Davis. She's Alaskan. Found out about her through the Commonplace podcast, actually. There's quite a good interview that Rachel does early on with Elena. And this poem stuck with me because it disturbed me. It goes like this. In this life, I was very minor. I was a minor lover. There was maybe a day, a night or two when I was on. I was, would have been, a minor daughter had my parents lived. I was a minor runner. I was a minor thinker in the middle distance, not too fast. 
I was a minor mother, only two, and sometimes I was mean to them. I was a minor beauty. I was a minor Buddhist. There was a certain symmetry, but it too was minor. My poems were not major enough to even make me a minor poet. But I did sit here. Instead of getting up, getting the gun, loading it, counting, killing myself. It really scared me when I first read it. Because I did not want anyone to talk about being not even enough to be a minor poet. That was not a future that I wanted to entertain at the time. And so the fact that there was this poet out there who was facing completely the the fact, as she saw it at the time, that she was less than minor, she was totally insignificant, uh, I hated that. <laughs> I really didn't like it at all. Elena is only in her late 50s now, so surely there's time for her to at least become a minor poet, right? I don't know, more and more I find the idea of significance really uncomfortable. One of the things that that poem of Elena's doesn't really address, but I think is there, is the fact that we don't have any control over our own significance on a grand scale, uh, or even on a normal scale. We, we don't get much of a say, particularly as people who have chosen this strange life of writing poetry. We can try. We can certainly make a big fuss and put a lot of effort into writing our own legacy while we are alive, which I will get to. But in the end, we're not in control of how our work is seen or remembered after we're gone. And this made me think of a, a poet who also fascinated me around about the time I, I came across that poem by Elena. This is a poet who ended up becoming significant for all the wrong reasons, really, or not the reasons I expect he would have hoped to. It's a poet called Weldon Keys. Very much fits the description of a minor poet. He is known more for how he died than how he lived, or at least how we think he died. I came across him because I was reading this article published back in 2005 about his disappearance. It's called The Disappearing Poet. By way of introducing him, I'll just read the start of that article. It's almost half a century since San Francisco police found a 1954 Plymouth Savoy on the north side of the Golden Gate Bridge. On Tuesday, July 19, 1955, a highway patrol reported that the car belonging to a Weldon Keys had been discovered with the keys in the ignition. Two of Keys' friends, Michael Grieg and Adrian Wilson, went to search the apartment of the missing man. There they found, among other things, his cat, lonesome, and a pair of red socks in a sink. His wallet, watch, and sleeping bag were missing. So was his savings account book, although the balance, which stood at more than $800, would remain that way. There was no suicide note. I have to admit here that I was much more interested in the story of Weldon Keyes' disappearance than I was in his poetry. <laughs> I, um, 
I love this article. It's, it's really beautifully written. It's got some incredible details in it. It talks about the readings that Keys used to run, which sound very, very fun. And the fact that he used to know Truman Capote, who said to him once, why don't you want to be a success? And it talks about the fact that on the day of his disappearance, he made a couple of phone calls, one of which was to a woman called Pauline Kael, who would, of course, go on to be a widely celebrated movie critic. And he said to these friends that things were not good and he may go to Mexico to stay. So there's this this idea around him that because he was never found, maybe he's in Mexico. So I was enchanted by all this and I wrote a poem about it. And after I'd put that poem together, I found out Um, Actually, this was after it was published too. I found out that that Weldon Keyes poems are a thing. People have been writing about Weldon Keyes (laughs) and thinking they were the first people to do so for quite a while now. So absolutely not an original move. But there's something about him that continues to fascinate us, obviously. Something about that story. But it's not his poetry. His poetry, I don't... He was writing kind of around the time of, like, one of the details in the story is that um, he's running these readings and there's this this guy called Lawrence Ferlenghi, which then that person becomes Lawrence Ferlinghetti. So he's kind of like at the, the dawn of the beat movement. But his poetry doesn't sound like anything like beat poetry. It doesn't sound like anything that you would expect to read written around this time in in, um, in the 40s and 50s. This is one of his, just one that I picked at random that was published in Poetry Magazine in 1948. Its epigraph is from Baudelaire's Spleen, which translates to, I have more memories than if I'd lived a thousand years. I really apologize for my French in this. This is just called Poem. Memories rich as Proust's or Baudelaire's are yours. You think, snarled ravelings of doubt at evening, sense of women, dazed with pleasure, whose white legs and arms once coiled with languor around you. Arguments with undistinguished friends, their bigotries each year more fixed. Lamps in the mist that light strange faces fill your nights. Your fingers drum upon the table, as you stare, uncertain, at the floor. Une vie bourgeois? Impossible. You frequently compare yourself to those whose memories are cruel, contemptible, like naked bone. Yet, is there anything in this rank richness, warm or permanent? At every climax, trapped, alone, You seem to be a helpless passenger that drifts on some frail boat and with oblivious ease as from a distance watch yourself disintegrate in foaming seas. Yeah? No, it's all right. I'll call you back. Yes. Yes. You all right? Oh, oh, you'll, uh, you'll want this. 
better come over here by the fire where it's warm. San Francisco Bay. You know, I, I uh, tried to dry your hair as best I could. Your things are in the kitchen. They'll be dry in a few minutes. So. Come on over by the fire. I really should have said at the start that all the poems I'm going to share in this episode are pretty depressing. If you're not up for that today, that's cool. Go, uh, go do something nice for yourself. Call a friend. Make a hot chocolate. Have a drink. I sit in the sun. I'll be here tomorrow. I have to assume that Weldon Keys would not be happy that these poets, 70-odd years later, are sitting around writing poems about him, not because they are interested in his work, but because they're fascinated by his disappearance. It's uncomfortable talking about this. Because the other angle on all this stuff is who in their right mind would ever admit to having ever entertained the idea that they wanted to be significant as a writer in any way? Who would say out loud that they wanted a legacy while they were still alive? Who would have that kind of unselfconsciousness? Well, there was, there was one poet who really early on, while he was still living at home, made a very bold claim that he was he was going to be the one and that poet was young Johnny Milton I'm cribbing the following quite a bit from the open Yale courses lectures on Milton which are really really great the lecturer professor John Rogers talks about how much Milton was already hard at work building his own myth right from when he started he was not writing poems and secretly hoping that his genius would be discovered later. He explicitly wanted everyone to know that he was going for immortality. He knew he wanted to be a poet. He went off and, and did some study, but he was public about his literary ambitions. He saw poetry as the work that he was put on earth to do, his divine calling, he genuinely seemed to think that he was being called by God to be a poet. And he lays all this out in this poem, Ad Patrum, which he wrote in 1637, so he's about 29 years old. He's been living at home for six years after graduating from university. So he goes to uni to learn how to be a priest He's been there for seven years, very expensive thing to do. His, his dad has funded the whole thing. He's come home and he has not joined the priesthood. He has not done anything. He has sat around reading for six years. And so he writes his poem to thank his dad and also to let him know that he has a totally different idea of what his life is going to be like. And he just... He just really wants his dad to be on board with this. Now would I desire the foundation of the muses to wind its watery way all through my soul, and on my lips to taste the stream that rolls on down from shining cliffs and Delphic heights. Then would the muse rise up on daring wings, despite my meagre melodies, to aid my worthy task, 
a parent's due respect. I know not how this trifling song will be received by you, beloved father. Yet what better way can I repay your gifts than this? Although what's said in worthless words will never be enough, this page presents my riches. All that I have of worldly wealth is here and on this paper. Nothing save what Golden Cleo gave me, or what dreams have brought me from the far-off caves of sleep, or from the shades of Mount Parnassus and the laurels of Apollo's sacred grove. Do not, dear father, scorn the poet's song, a task divine, for nothing does so well proclaim the ethereal source of mankind, the human spirit, and Promethean fire within. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's really long, and it's basically just saying the same thing over and over again. Hey, Dad, I'm going to be a poet. Hope you're okay with that. I think I'm going to be really good at it. Cool. And then, yeah, last bit. And you, my merry trifles, youthful songs. If only you dare hope for endless years. If only you outlast your master's pyre. Lest black oblivion drag you to the void, if only you should look upon the light. Perhaps my thanks set down here on this page may as example serve a distant age. It's really hard to imagine what that would be like at, at 29. I mean, basically, he's a failure. He's a total failure at this point. He's living at home. He's read a bunch of books. He hasn't really written too much at this stage but he just thinks that he's going to be a legend he believes that that god has chosen him to be shakespeare's successor i can't imagine that i can't i can't even imagine what that mindset would be like i love how he he speaks to his poems at the end there as you you my merry trifles youthful songs and the fact that he's thinking of this this distant age in the last line. The only other poet that I can think of that makes that sort of move so boldly is Whitman. You that shall cross from shore to shore years hence are more to me and more in my meditations than you might suppose. It's nuts. It seems completely nuts to me <laughs> to write that down. I mean, what have you wrong? stops me from writing is this paralyzing sense that what I want to put down on the page that day or on the screen isn't anything. It's, it's never going to be significant. And this is why I say I've almost given up on the idea because there is still something in me that feels as if, if I'm going to write something, maybe it should be something that could last. But that's really paralyzing, like I say. The fact is I'm not going to write 
enough books to fill a bookshelf. That's, that just isn't going to happen. <laughs> um, and it's not my ambition to do that anymore. My ambition is much more about being happy myself and maybe making a few other people happy as well. But I think the nice thing about the idea of writing something that might outlast you is that it makes up for the fact that the life of a poet is pretty lonely sometimes and weird and hard to explain. Your own parents don't get what you're doing. I don't know how Milton's dad took Ad Patrum, but he sure spent a lot of lines trying to explain what his goal was. And a lot of it sounds like he's making justifications for his decision. He doesn't sound confident in a lot of that poem. Even the people closest to us might not get it. So it's a nice thought to imagine that somebody far, far in the future might still care about what you wrote. But for now, what I'm realizing is that significance is pretty much the last thing worth worrying about. We can't know, right? Milton didn't necessarily know. Weldon Keyes didn't know. Elena doesn't know. I don't know. Maybe I have a poem in me that's going to last for the rest of time. But I can't think about that. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a useful way to approach work at all. Trying to be brilliant. Trying to matter. Trying to win prizes and get published in places that I thought were prestigious has never made me happy. In fact, it's made me very stressed out and quite miserable. What makes me happy is thinking about the other people that do this work and how we're all just going for it. And sometimes we really land it. And it's really fucking incredible when that happens. It makes no difference whether we're remembered or forgotten. I'm going to end with a much more recent poem that I found in the journal 32 Poems. And I have to send many, many thanks to the editor, David Clark, who has shared a couple of issues of this journal with me. I was speaking with Matthew a couple of weeks back and revealed that I've been spending a lot of time reading The New Yorker. And uh, this is apparently not, it's, it's not the place. It's not the spot for poetry in the US. And so this very kind editor has sent me a couple of journals, a couple of issues of 32 poems. This is from volume 19, number one, so the spring-summer issue for last year, 2021. And this is a poem by a guy called George Green. I know pretty much nothing about him. There's not much about him online. Seems as if he has had some bright, uh, shining moments of success and recognition and then has been pretty quiet for a while and maybe is just starting to publish again at the moment. I'm not really sure. I don't, I don't really care to know uh, too much more than that. I just really like this poem. It's called Summer of 72. And to me, this is, this is what it's like. Hanging out with other poets, sharing work with each other. Sometimes you like it, sometimes you hate it. 
mostly you just talk about movies. But you have each other. And that gets you through the weird shared obsession that occasionally takes over your whole life. So this is, this is Summer of 72 by George Green. I hitched from Iowa City out to Oakland and spent the night with Daryl Gray, a lonely poet, sensitive and kind. And his poems were decent too, but he drank himself to death in 1985. And his landlord tossed his papers and effects into the street. Then I went on to Venice Beach to stay with Tom, and Desmond Rogers came and chanted poignantly his epic poem, until at length we interrupted him. Desmond dressed like Buffalo Bill and had the hair, moustache, goatee, and total Wild West show regalia. And he wept a little when we made him stop, which made us feel we could have suffered longer. Well, then I hitched with Tom up to Big Sur and camped out on Kim Novak's property, which she allowed. And another hippie told us her estate was named Nepenthe, and I waited for her to ride out on her horse so I could tell her all about George Darley, the late romantic bard who wrote Nepenthe and who, afflicted with a dreadful stammer, seldom socialised. Tom thought that Kim had always been a big hole in the screen, but vertigo was profound, in part because of Jimmy Stewart's ability to tap at will into untreated PTSD from his wartime bombing raids, while Kim, who looked like a perfect siren in a dream, would, with her touching performance, become a ravishing advertisement for romantic and deranged obsession. There are many such stories. Well, thank you very much. You have a Appreciate it. Goodbye. Hey, wait a minute. Goodbye, Pop. Thanks Goodbye. a lot. Now then, Johnny, pay me. For what? Well, for bringing you here. Come on, tell. <laughs> There's nothing to tell. You'll tell or you'll be back in that corset. Oh, come on, Johnny, come on, come please. On. Take you home. I've told you enough. Well, who's the guy and who's the wife? Out. I've got things to do. I know. The one that phoned. Your old college chum, Elster. Midge, out, please. Out. The idea is that the beautiful Mad Carlotta has come back from the dead and taken possession of Elster's wife. <laughs> oh, now, Johnny, really. Come on. Well, I'm not telling you what I think. I'm telling you what he thinks. Well, what do you think? Well, I... Is she pretty? Carlotta? No, not Carlotta, Elster's wife. Yes. I guess you'd consider that she would... I think I'll go take a look at that portrait. Goodbye. Midge. Goodbye. Midge, you... 